0: Cairo is an unstable city. It constantly changes its skin, transforming its urban and architectural character in a piecemeal fashion, and at a speed that far surpasses the pace of scholarship and documentation. The city tests the permanence of buildings, as structures built to last generations often have short shelf lives and are replaced or modified multiple times within the span of a century. Many of Cairo's iconic buildings today replaced earlier structures. The monumental Immobilia Building, 1940, replaced the neo-Islamic palace Hotel Saint-Maurice, 1879, that housed the French consulate. The sprawling October Bridge, 1969-1999, to required the demolition of several buildings along its path, such as the Anglican All Saints Cathedral, 1938, a cornerstone of colonial Cairo. The Arab League building, 1955, and the Nile Hilton, 1958, were built on land previously occupied by the army barracks built in 1856 that later housed British troops from 1882 until 1947 when it was demolished. The massive intercontinental hotel replaced the old Semiramis Hotel, 1907, next door to the Egyptian Museum, 1902, the former headquarters of the National Democratic Party 1959, originally erected to House Cairo's municipality, was demolished in the early days of conceiving this book. Efforts to save the building from demolition, for its architectural and historical value, failed. The building's modernist design was equated in public discourse with ugliness, a necessary maneuver to facilitate its demolition. Numerous houses, apartment blocks, public buildings, and entire districts built in the span of the 20th century across Cairo's vast geography have been demolished in the past three decades to satisfy the insatiable real estate market currently producing buildings that lack any architectural point of view. Other demolitions make room for piecemeal development projects led by state institutions. Modern structures disappear without record. They casually melt into air as if they had never existed.
1: So that was an excerpt of uh, Cairo Since 1900, an architectural guide uh, by Mohammed shahid and um, reading to you was Marsha links Quayle. I'm Ursula Lindsay, and this is the Bulak podcast, uh, being recorded between Amman, Jordan, where I am, and Rabat, Morocco, where Marsha is, a podcast about books from, uh, about and in the Arab world. And the book that we're looking at today is a book about the city where we actually both used to live, Cairo, and a city that, um, one never gets tired, I think, of thinking about, caring about, talking about, (laughs) getting upset about, (laughs) um, (laughs) Uh, this book um as the title suggests is about the city's modern uh, architectural uh richness and heritage much of which uh is um very quickly uh, replaced to destroyed uh renovated in more or less responsible ways um and the author of this book, uh, Muhammad al-Shahid, is someone who uh, I know from my time in Cairo. I think what um, first made me know him was probably his blog, Cairo Observer, um, which is yeah. really uh, yeah. You too. Was that sort of what the first thing? Yes, that definitely. You- yeah. And it was really, I mean, I, t- to this day, it's its a really quite extraordinary resource. It became a very collective blog with a lot of people contributing. Um, it has a lot of really interesting articles about architecture and urban planning and development, not just from Egypt. It became really regional with contributions uh, from across the region. Um, and then uh, Mohamed is also, he's a scholar. He's an architectural historian. Um, he was in Cairo doing research uh, for 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 his PhD, which he now has. Um, he is teaching as a practitioner in residence at New York University this this year, um, and uh, he's also a curator who has curated a couple. Um, Very interesting shows um, such as a show called Modernist Indignation at the London Design Biennale that was about modernism in Egypt um, and particularly about one um, architect who features in this book uh, and whose legacy was uh, sort of undermined and erased by the Nasser regime. Um, and uh, he also curated the British Museum's Modern Egypt project, which was a collection of sort of everyday objects from Egypt. Um, so he's a I think really one of the most brilliant and interesting uh, scholars on the built environment uh, in in Cairo and in Egypt today. And he's put together this book, um, with funding from the Bargill Foundation, uh, you know, and, and assembled with like a big research team and published by AUC Press uh, that is uh, a really lovely, very elegant, very thoughtful uh, resource on the modern uh, architecture of Egypt. No, I don't have a hard copy. You, Marcia, <laughs> do right? Like you actually? I
0: did. I got mine in. I got mine in the mail yesterday.
1: I'm I'm very jealous, and I'm gonna wag my finger at AUC Press because I have been sort of, I've gone from begging to scolding them <laughs> to harassing <laughs> them for the last couple of weeks about getting me a review copy, and um, in the end, someone is hand delivering. A, a copy for me from Cairo next week, um, but but so you have the book. So 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 talk a bit about how it's structured and how one can use it because I think you know right. I've only seen the PDF. One of the
0: great right. One of the great things about it is that it's not a coffee table book. I think one way of doing this book would have been to have a gigantic um, sort of lunk of a book that you would heft down or only be able to use as a sort of an in-house, in- indoors resource. This is a light book um, it, with, a, you know, a sort of a sturdy paperback cover. And, and it's smaller than, than an 8.5 by 11 novel size. It is, you know, it's not quite pocket size, but it's definitely, you could slip it in your purse and carry it around the city in order to look at the buildings in Cairo while holding on to this book. So it begins with a um, a series of uh of historic photos and the historic photos in this book are one of the most lovely aspects to it um because a number of the buildings that he profiles from the 20th century have since been demolished uh, many of these are historic photos some some uh of the buildings he profiles are buildings that are still proposed um so those are more sort of Sketches than than actual photographs, and then some are contemporary photographs. But the historic photos are a really beautiful part of of this uh, product. So it begins with an introduction, an overview uh, of of Cairo as he he asserts a 20th century city. So he's he, you know, of course, Cairo is also a historic city, but he's looking at Cairo and the explosive growth that it underwent mostly in the 20th century, although also in the late 19th century. Um, some of many of these buildings were some of the buildings in the, in the book were constructed. Um, he looks at 226 structures over 120 years and um it, it so it begins with a a lovely introduction um that tells us that the last time that there was a book that with an overview of architecture across cairo was by in 1989 by tofi abdel gaed which i think in cairo years in how much the city landscape changes year to year is a tremendously long time um so so this is the first apparently uh, survey of Architecture across Cairo, and n- sort of not just what's what's um, the beautiful buildings of downtown or the lovely buildings of Heliopolis, but mm-hmm. also there are sections on Imbaba and Nasser City. Um, there are, um, you know, uh, what what school buildings look like, what what ordinary how you know housing structures look like, as well as. Uh, aspects, uh, unique architectural choices and artistic choices. Um, So after the introduction, you have maps. There's also a very helpful glossary at the beginning um, because, for instance, while I know what, you know, Mamluk means, I don't really know what neo-Mamluk style uh, is, or what neo-Mamluk architecture would be. So there's a very helpful glossary at the beginning of these architectural terms. Um, and then each, each segment, it comes at, by neighborhood. So there's a, a, there's a longer segment for downtown. And then there's, you know, there's Bulak, there's Mohandasin, there's Garden City, Do'i, there's a separate one it- for Zemalek, for Ma'idi. Go ahead.
1: So it's, or yeah, it's organized by neighborhoods and it has a map also that, that helps you like find each, each place. So it seems really... right. So there are
0: some, some beautiful things, especially some of them that you would no longer know what they look like um, from their current external facade uh, that you could use both the map and the book to go. Stand outside and read about the history, um, you know, in a hopefully a non creepy stalkerish way. Well, I don't think
1: buildings are going to be too troubled being stalked.
0: <laughs> yeah, but I mean, I, I, agree I personally that the- would love to go see, like, the Villa Badran, which, you know, um, in Mahandasin, which I've never noticed apparently because it no longer looks like an adobe building on the outside, but I would love to see what it looks like now.
1: Yeah, I think that you're right that the illustrations are very are very well chosen, are 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 very nice, and um, in a lot of cases, they give you a view of the building that it's like impossible to have from street level, um, and I mean both because the building has been changed and altered, but also because some of the photos are taken, some of them are drawings, or some of them are taken from on high. And so you can kind of see the whole building and really appreciate its design, where if you're just sort of experiencing the city as someone walking through it, it's it's hard to get that view. Um, I mean, both because the buildings have been altered, but also because, like, as a pedestrian, you don't have that view. And then because the city itself is so overwhelming that it's kind of hard to, like, step back and look at things in this way sometimes, um, Absolutely. I felt that way,
0: particularly about the U.S. Embassy building, which I've been in. But uh, as I looked at the photograph of it, I couldn't place it because I i feel like me, I've been there down on ground level, sort of trying to snake through all those cement barriers and get through 9,000 doors in order to do my whatever business inside. I, I've never, I never noticed what the building itself looked like.
1: Yeah. I mean, that is one of the buildings in the book that I, I certainly do not consider to be very beautiful. And there's, and there's more than one. And, but, but I think what's, what's interesting about the book too is, I mean, it includes sort of like landmark, uh, quite famous buildings, but it includes a lot of sort of quote unquote ordinary buildings or buildings who you, they don't even know who the architect is. And, and, it, and it's, and it's really a panorama of the whole built environment. Um and uh and and it gives you a sense just of, of of what was being built and what all these different styles were and practices were. Um and you know, without the kind of it has, I think, in some cases, it there there is, although the descriptions are quite technical, it it, it you do get a sense of what um, of some aesthetic judgment, but that is not the only criteria or the main criteria um, for for including the buildings. It's really sort of a they they're included also for just being representative of certain kinds of built environments that were that were being made at certain times in the city.
0: Absolutely. I really appreciated seeing um, schools in particular, but also, uh, you know, the sort of gigantic housing projects of Nasser city and, uh, and other, yeah, general overviews of how a neighborhood was constructed as well as things that were artistic and interesting uh, on their, on their own
1: as individual projects. I mean, like he says in the introduction, it, it, Muhammad al shahid says, I hope that this book, I think he says something like, will make people see the city in a new light um, in addition to, you know, valuing sort of the memory and the history of the city a bit differently. And, and I think it really does. Um, and I don't know what sort of your takeaways from it were, but one of the ones for me was I sort of knew about these moments in Cairo of like huge uh, sort of changes in direction of the development of the city, Um, like sort of huge amounts of of construction and of demolition. And and so one of them being like when the, you know, quote unquote, modern European downtown uh, began to be built and there began to be this big dividing line between the historic medieval, sometimes called Islamic, core of Cairo, mm. which is hundreds if not thousands of years old, and this kind of very famous downtown neighborhood um, that that has all these, you know uh, – Cafes and theaters and and beautiful apartment buildings and 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 so but but it really the book really emphasizes the fact that the entire modern history of Cairo has been one of such violent change and change <laughs> and change that people have embraced like that 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 there's been a complete embrace of newness of new neighborhoods right. new 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 suburbs new building styles and this is the modern history of the city has, has been, and to have that spelled out for me was interesting. Like that, you know, it's not just this one rupture happening. It's a, it's a history of ruptures actually. Right. Well, I think it's
0: interesting. So some cities are sort of obsessed with their history and with staying in, in a particular aesthetic in a particular line, but he, there's, at one moment, he said the sanctity of design was always trumped by practical needs and changing tastes, and I think yeah, Cairo has been a city where constantly uh, changing, and and also the number of times he says that there were eclectic tastes, varied inspirations, um, uh, that downtown defies stylistic categorization. That some you know some people will call it sort of in a you know european but that downtown has so many different styles and inspirations that uh, he says hybridity defines most of its buildings
1: yeah i was also and struck I, by that that these like architects that were like greek and italian and armenian and syrian or or egyptian but had studied in like other uh, you know other countries and and had this very sort of cosmopolitan background and education and then they put together these buildings that are beautiful but that are like almost impossible to categorize by like an architectural school or style because they really kind of like mixed and used whatever thought they thought worked and looked good and met the needs of the market. and um i, I was i was struck by that too
0: I was also saddened at the beginning so he he notes that a building must be more than 100 years old to be uh defined as uh, a historic monument um and and that it's not it's not really to the building owner's benefit for their for their building to be declared as a historic monument so that many people destroyed their buildings on purpose uh, so that they would not be declared historic monuments, In, you know. He noted, and one did partic- seem particularly terrible and scary and violent—that injecting acid into the into the structure of the building so that it would melt and fall apart. Yeah. I felt
1: really kind of sad for the building. Well, there's a lot to be sad. I mean, there's there's, I think for people. Who are interested in the city, and I think that's a lot of people, there's a lot to be sad and angry about. I mean, the another famous case of this process of the hundred years deadline, which is the point at which your building might get listed, which is the point at which you will then kind of lose control of what you can do with it because of these quite rigid laws – and therefore, the owners try to damage it. The building that houses Café Riche, where Naguib Mahfouz famously like met with other writers on this sort of like landmark of downtown. When I was living in Cairo in the mid 2000s, at some point, the owner of that building, to make sure it wouldn't get listed, had workmen go up and just hammer off all the stone balconies. And it's really Mm. ugly. Like you can see now it's this facade and it's just had, you know, like and really roughly they just like smashed off all the balconies so that. And, you know, he did it in plain daylight, like along Talat Harb Street in downtown Cairo. Like nobody, no, nothing stopped them. I think maybe they had the excuse that the balconies were collapsing. Uh, And so then they got rid of all of them. And uh, and that prevents it, I think, from being listed, or at least that's what I was told was the reason behind like defacing this old building. Um, there's there's a lot of loss in this, like right. the book and I, chronicles a lot of loss. It's it's interesting though because he he seems
0: very almost on the edge of lamenting that Cairo did not have a great destruction like Europe had in World War II because it's all of these incremental losses um, rather than a big loss and then starting over. Uh, So it's a city with so many different timelines all all at once.
1: Yeah. I also think there's a sense in the book that like, it seems to me that from the 1970s on, there clearly is a heyday also of this, like, you know, how, how however dramatic, you know, construction and development and redevelopment may be, the the architecture from the early and mid-century is clearly of such architectural interest and value. And then when you get to, like, the 70s and 80s, like, really, there's not that many examples. Like, he does include things, you know, up until recent years, but they really don't seem to be of equal richness or interest. Um, And I think it does say something about... Uh, more and more of the construction of the city becoming done by amateurs uh, but not by by non-architects by contractors and engineers and then of course just by people sort of informally because you have that whole enormous expansion of informal neighborhoods uh, on the outskirts of Cairo which at this point I think constitute the largest percentage of the built environment in Cairo actually and which I'm not dogging on like those those are neighborhoods Mm. that exist for a reason and that have I think been for the most part unfairly maligned uh the famous ashwayette or or random neighborhoods or, or or informal neighborhoods or slums or whatever people want to call them um but I think in terms of like public buildings and apartment buildings and buildings where people do have the means to build like there's there hasn't been architecture of the same quality and innovation at all as there was uh, in the 30s or 40s or 50s or 60s. Like it's just you can see it. Right. Well, of- and I
0: I guess I would say anecdotally, I think there's maybe more uh, kind of customer focused architecture now. So where there is an architect involved, often them their their vision being overwhelmed by what the client wants or, yeah, or as you' say know. Um, you know people building without an architect entirely, but I think that was another sort of theme from his introduction uh the both the lack of a central architectural archive in in Cairo about how Cairo was designed over time and sort of a general unawareness of of architects who built the city and and at first, when I read this, I thought, well, I probably don't know very many, you know, he said the only architect the Egyptian architect that most people can name is Hassan Fahmi, um, who had this sort of you know eclectic vision about rural architecture. And at first I thought, well, I probably can't name any architects at all. What are you talking about? But then as I did flip through, interestingly, the names that I could recognize were all European architects. Who had built inside Cairo, and I didn't know. And although I did recognize those names, I didn't recognize any of the names of of the Egyptian architects. And he, you know, he suggests that that the teaching of architecture currently in universities inside Egypt uh, makes it so people are unaware of their architectural predecessors. I mean, of course, people, uh, individual people, will do their own research to become aware, but that generally, by and large, people are, un- uh, that architects being trained in universities in Egypt are unaware of the history of Egyptian architecture architecture, and who came before them in order to build on their legacy or push back against their legacy. Um, and then I would also note that I just heard, you know, last time I was there that also, you know, because of importing um texts has become so expensive in Cairo. Architectural magazines, for example, now are so ridiculously pricey to buy. So for contemporary architects to get a sense of what's going on in the world.
1: Yeah, I mean, he calls it a blind spot with regards to to Egyptian modernism in particular, right? I mean, I'm not sure what the architecture curriculum in Egypt entails, but clearly one studies sort of what is considered to be a uh, historical heritage but but that kind of ends at the beginning of the of the 20th century which is strange cuz architecture is, is is as a field is is quite i think oriented towards like what's contemporary what's cutting edge um and uh and and then I think and I think there's a lack of emphasis on what was locally produced maybe um I mean one of the other things this book tries to do is it's kind of broaden the awareness of like uh of modernism taking place in the global south modernism as a school of thought and aesthetics and practice um that there were like innovations and and styles being produced uh in Cairo and and elsewhere in the region um and that it wasn't just a Western phenomenon, or just defined by how it, it it took place in the West.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I think there's a fascinating, particularly when it comes to this hybridity of, of building buildings in different styles. Um, and and I, I thought it was so lovely all these demolished villas in um, in Giza and in Mahandesine. Just you know, many of them had. Um, a distinct aesthetic and artistic vision. Um, and
1: Yeah, and that, ma- and that made sense with the weather, made sense with the kind of light, with the kind of temperature. Like often the adaptations are that. Sometimes they're adaptations to the lifestyle. So it was interesting to me that he said they had modernist aesthetics, but often they were actually very luxurious housing because mm. they were for like upper class people. So they were not functional in the way that like – this style was often expected to be so it had the kind of cleanness of 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 modernism but was actually still encapsulating a very like old bourgeois lifestyle um which is why you get these just like amazing apartments in Cairo (laughs) like just these extraordinary these beautifully finished like so spacious and and so lovely uh housing stock in 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 central Cairo um, yeah, and there are all, all sorts of wonderful stories, um,
0: uh, like the the Villa Um Kul I don't know if you uh, read about that one, but that it was built in, in 1936, and that she lived there until her death in 1975. And although there had been talk about turning it into a museum, her museum actually is elsewhere, and it was demolished in 1982. But that so that building doesn't exist anymore, but that an Iraqi businessman made a a, a copy of that house, and he built it in Baghdad in the 1950s, and that has not been destroyed and still exists.
1: Yeah, that's a yeah, that's a great story. Um, mm. um, yeah, but it also speaks to sort of the you know um, you know uh, to what extent
0: I don't know were some of these styles copied and and proliferated elsewhere.
1: Well, there are some examples in the book about these Egyptian architects that they did propose big buildings and big uh, development plans for other Arab capitals. I think they were. I mean, I think Egyptian expertise in many different fields, especially in the like 50s and 60s, was kind of in demand and exported across the region to some degree. Uh, you know, it wouldn't surprise me if if they if they were sort of like. Uh, uh, you know, pioneers as they were in so many other fields, whether it was, you know, uh, cinema or teaching, you know, that there was a lot of Egyptian influence elsewhere. Uh, I Mm -hmm. mean, the story about the Omkul Sum House, though, is is, is just one of so many of these examples because the idea was to maybe preserve it and make it a museum, and that didn't happen, Um, as with so many sites, uh, which which really should have been protected by the authorities and it's this combination of you know undervaluing of this kind of built environment with corruption and with real estate speculation also just with like i think a real lack of of understanding or 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 love for the city and and this gets into sort of i think the most right. painful right. parts of when you like read and write about Cairo's modern history which is this just you know when 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 we were there recently what everybody was talking about was the the incredible destruction that has been wrought on a historic suburb of Cairo which is featured in the book which has he he says that the probably the second most you know biggest uh amount of 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 historically interesting buildings in the city which is Heliopolis and uh and which has been, you know, com- which had has been stripped of, I think it's nearly four hundred thousand square meters of green space in the last yes. year, as the authorities, with ze- with zero consulting with the local community, with just turning a, you know, complete deaf ear to like every expert and urban planner and 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 architect and and person who would be concerned and have expertise on this, went and tore up all these like public green medians and trees and parks so that they could widen and build new like multi-lane giant freeways which they want to serve traffic to this new administrative capital out in the desert which is kind of President Sisi's dream uh, you know new new center of Cairo which is supposed to be full of ministries and government buildings and embassies and You know, and they defaced this. I mean, who tears up trees in a city like Cairo? Well, as but as exactly as you said, it's
0: it's somebody in power who doesn't care. I mean, so anecdotally, what I was told is that the guy who is was in charge of of making easier access from places like Abasea to to the new capital. So through Heliopolis was that he personally does not like trees. And that personally, at his own villa, he's <laughs> removed trees because he considers them too much trouble to take care of, too much trouble upkeep. They they shed, they're terrible. He doesn't like trees personally, so um, so he had this mandate um, make easy access, and he simply did not care if greenery was but, removed. But
1: the other problem is that is that is that you have a a governance structure and a city development structure that allows you to put such an enormous decision, such as whether there will be green spaces in a neighborhood, in the hands of one apparently like hate tree hating psychopath. Like why? <laughs> why? How can it be? This is not a. Pro, this is not the process by which such major decisions should be should be taken. And there was huge opposition to this, and people couldn't stop it. There's just nothing to be right. done. And, right. and, and,
0: and I, I think and when people met with, with him, right, they they, I mean, all, it's also very dangerous for people because you can no longer cross these roads as a pedestrian, and there are not flyovers, and so there has also been an increase in pedestrian deaths because of it.
1: And stories about how people can't, there's no way to. The only way to exit your neighborhood now is to get onto one of these huge freeways and drive into the right. desert for half an hour, because there's no longer <laughs> any way to take. You can only take a right, and the right only goes out, you know, for for sixty kilometers somewhere before you can turn around. I mean, it, it, it is such a scandal. And then the other thing, you know, the the neighborhood that this show is named after, Bulak, which which is has. Historically, but you know, I mean, quite historically, quite a long time ago, was like a industrial neighborhood on the sides of the ports. I mean, had had you know on the sides of the river and had actually a little port, and and then is is a mix of. Uh, um, there's a newspaper uh, headquarters. There's these skyscrapers, but there were also these low-income neighborhood in what was called the Masbido Triangle. And the last time I went to Cairo, the Masbido Triangle is gone. I mean, there there is just a, a nothingness in this in this huge area right in central Cairo. It's it, it's just evaporated. I mean, talk about things just evaporating. They're they're just gone. Um, and again, right. to build. Some like high end, uh, you know, development, which in the original plans was supposed to include housing and gardens and the option for residents to stay. And and in the in some of the latest images I've seen, it seems to be only skyscrapers. Uh, I bet you there's going to be no low income housing. I bet you nobody who originally lived there is 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 going to actually be able to continue uh, living there. And, and, and again, there was huge opposition to this to this plan, but it went ahead anyway. Um, there's just right, uh, and it's right.
0: The I mean, that- it's a generally a a, a a problem of a authoritarian sort of rule. Al- although it's possible that also this sort of devaluation of architects and the role of architects in the city and the importance of architectural design that. Um, that Muhammad underlines in the introduction does play a role in sort of you know one guy saying I'm going to redesign the city
1: today. Here, let's make all the cars go this There's, way. It's a devaluation. It's a devaluation of all independent expertise across all domains mm-hmm. on the part of this like military-dominated authoritarian regime, which thinks that they know better than everybody else. And and it's not just this this government. I mean, the the the, the this is a, there's a really long history in the governance of the city of Cairo, at least since the Mubarak years, uh, of uh, these like uh, big unilateral decisions being taken with very little consultation. Of this endless fantasy, which which. This book kind of puts into context of starting over again and again. So right, we don't right. just build a new neighborhood; we're just going to we're going to build like literally a new city, and 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 it's going to be perfect, and it's going to be under control, and it's going to be clean, and there's not going to be too many of these troublesome people there, and and the authorities keep. Doing this with like very limited success, like a lot of these sort of new desert cities and desert developments ha- have sort of never filled up or, or or taken on a economic and social life. Uh, there's there's no investment in public transportation. I mean, it, it's, I, I I start to stutter because it just makes me so mad. <laughs> and and after t- and after 2011, after the uprising, there was. For several years, I attended this kind of, like, working group discussion that was all about Cairo's urban development, and it was, like, activists and academics and just members of the general public who were interested. It was hosted by an NGO in Cairo, and I used to go, and every... every, time there would be a discussion of a different sort of aspect and experts would come in and give talks about traffic about public space you know uh, about transportation and 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 people would share all these ideas and all these plans that they had for how to improve the city and there's so many good ideas out there for how to improve the city mm. and it feels mm. like the people who run the city always do the exact opposite of what <laughs> Of of what is, you know, has been scientifically proven around the world to be best practice in terms of the environment, in terms of transportation, in terms of, uh, you know, civic values, they will do the exact opposite. And, and yeah, it is it is stunning the number of really amazing
0: world-class experts who exist in Cairo who could redesign the city in so many ways, whose expertise is not listened to at all.
1: Not listened to at all. because 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 it's ideological. it it's it's, you know, it's like the people who rule the city want a different city. they They, they can't seem to see what how it works, uh, what it needs, what there is that's beautiful there. um, and and this sort of endless now expansion of like, giant freeways giant developments you know mega mm. malls gated cities outside of the city it, you know it's 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 a it's on an inhuman scale and it is the opposite of what is uh attractive and and vibrant uh and and, and unique about Cairo uh and and it's it's just it's really maddening um and uh you know, I, and I'm happening saying-
0: at an absolutely ra- a, an amazingly rapid pace as well. The these uh, the new gated communities that went up around Cairo, I feel suddenly just exploded over the course of ten years. Nick, you blink and you would miss an an entirely new gated city go up.
1: And it's a different way of life. I mean, it's. It's it's a radically different way of living to live out there than to live anywhere in in central Cairo. Um, when I did my uh, my master's thesis, which was a while ago now, um, I, I wrote about uh, the image of Cairo in modern Egypt of modern Cairo in modern Egyptian literature, and so sort of starting from that divide that there was that I mentioned between medieval Cairo and these new neighborhoods that were built, uh, you know, uh, between the end of the 19th century and the beginning of the 20th century, which is a divide that like Naguib Mahfouz writes about or Yusuf Idris writes about um, mm. this. Uh, and it sets up this kind of like modern versus traditional dichotomy in the city. But then by the time I was writing the the divisions in the city were much more about the center versus the periphery and it was these gated these these gated cities uh these like escape from cairo cities right where it was explicitly right. marketed as leave the city behind and all its problems pollution harassment you know all these things and come live here and the other margins of the city, which was the informal neighborhoods, which were always, almost always talked about, you know, with a lot of disdain as, you know, breeding grounds for crime and terrorism and all these social problems, even though, like, by some estimates, a majority of the city's population lived there. So they weren't right. marginal. It's like you, you're marginalizing what is actually the majority of the people in the, the city. Center. Right. Yeah, yeah. I mean you're you're displacing out. and and there are also like fun neighborhoods to visit and that also have like a, a logic like they're built efficiently, they're built as efficiently as people can under the circumstances. Mm. And and David Sims books about right. Cairo yes. are, are very good at I think one is called Understanding Cairo um and I can't remember what the other one, are they're very very good analyses of why like the density of these neighborhoods makes a lot of sense. And, uh, and that, yeah, there's things you can do to improve them, but actually there's a lot of things you could do to learn from them as opposed to like always insisting on like having a bunch of McMansions out in the desert. Right. Exactly. That there is, that there is a tremendous
0: logic to those, those parts of the city.
1: Yeah, because when people build for themselves, like they do things that make sense to them. And, and again, after the revolution, one of the things I remember that people did was because the highways that are built around Cairo purposely have no off and on ramps to those neighborhoods because they want to kind of like deny their existence. And one of the many sort of like people taking things into their own hands moments that happened was there was a neighborhood that like built its own on ramp onto the freeway. Right.
0: Yeah, the, the where the roads will and won't go, and where there is a point to turn around, and where there is a point to cross, is are, are all tremendous issues of power
1: inside the city. Yeah, well, how the city sees itself, which of course is a question that comes up in literature a lot. I mean, Egyptian literature, I think, one the building as a unit is a narrative mm. is a narrative setting that has been used from like Naguib Mahfouz to Alaa Al to like a lot of writers right like just the residential unit as a narrative framework right um as and the, or, or or the alley uh and, and then like the, it's a very urban literature like for, for the most part, i mean Cairo plays a disproportionate right. large place in it i think
0: yeah, absolutely. But interestingly, I mean, it's sort of just as I began to think about it, because I was so persuaded by his argument that Egyptian architects have been uh, devalued. It, it was hard for me to think of Egyptian novels where an architect is a protagonist. There are I mean, there are obviously some. Uh, Reem Basuni's novel, Mortal Designs, was the first one c- that came to mind because it's a recent novel and it does have this um, architect who wants to be immortal um, as, as a protagonist. Um, <laughs> then there's apparently <clears throat> a Nagib Mahfouz play called Um in which there is an architect swindler who who wants to get this old building and so that he can pull it down and make a factory, hmm. which I found interesting and then one of my really favorite um literary passages is from tofi al hakim's uh, the prison of life um I always love it when tofi al Hakim complains about his father, and I think one of his father's core obsessions was was building and unbuilding, oh. and was, think, was thinking himself an architect. Um, and and first, I think it started with, with an outbuilding S- so, for horses. So
1: are you, are you going to read from that?
0: Yes, I would love to read from The Prison of Life by, by Tafi Al-Hakim. Building and demolition in our house became something natural and continuous, like eating and drinking. For months, for years, it never stopped for my father had decided to be his own architect, contractor, and master of works. He hired masons, carpenters, and blacksmiths, and would tell them, cut a new passage here, pull down that wall over there, block this window here, fit a door over there. No sooner had they done what he commanded than it was found that the door opened not onto the hall, but onto the water closet, and that the wall had been removed, merged the kitchen with the lounge, and so on, and so on. My father would then command them to block what they had opened and rebuild what they'd demolished. Next, he would turn to another wall and order it torn down, only to find that it supported the ceiling of another room, which was now sagging, so there was more rebuilding. All along, he was absolutely determined to rely on himself and his own expertise and not to bring in an architect. I was not only an observer at what was going on, but also a victim, incommoded by having to sleep for a long time in rooms, of which the windows had been ripped out and replaced by blankets. I would ask my father, why don't you employ an architect to take charge of all this and give yourself a rest? He would answer mockingly, you're a fool. Does anybody but a fool employ an architect? What will he do but draw on a blue paper a few elegant lines with a ruler and a compass and say, here's a room, there's a hall? "'What he will say, we already know. "'We are, by far, the best judges of what we want.' "'The ultimate result was quite simply "'that masons, carpenters, and painters "'became permanent residents with us. "'They arrogated to themselves a room near the garden gate, "'where they settled, stayed overnight, held parties, "'and received immediate members of the family, "'kinsmen and friends as guests. "'From the house, a regular supply of coffee and tea "'and lunches and dinners was sent down.' They even acquired a voice in what was cooked and presented them day by day. They would say, we're tired of malachia and okra, make us some kushari today. Sometimes they would suggest, pickle us some cucumbers and green peppers, and they would even prescribe the way they liked the pickling to be done and the ingredients to be mixed. And in a corner of the garden they planted radishes and leeks and watercress. They thoroughly enjoyed this comfortable life. What with rooms minus walls, windows minus glass, and hammering and demolition taking place above our heads in the new story, my younger brother and I found life unbearable. Yet when I asked the workmen when the work was to be finished, they replied, Never. It's like Goha's water wheel. What we build in the morning, we demolish in the afternoon. It's the bay's
1: orders. I love that. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, So really the problem is just egomania. At the root, at well, the root, perhaps <laughs> of a lot of of a lot of the ur- a lot of the urban issues we're discussing.
0: Well, it's funny because all elsewhere in that in that memoir, he talks about a government minister visiting his father and being so impressed with what an amazing architect his father was, and being like won over by the the father's uh, you know assertion that there's no need for architects; one can just you know scribble one's own ideas. Great. So. I, I think you know. I feel like maybe we should blame everything on Taufiq Al Hakim's father. Yeah, <laughs> it's true that but to there's me that, this, that passage. Yeah, to me that passage represents a lot of this kind of tearing down and building up, and tearing down and building up without taking a moment to think. Wait,
1: what's the result of this going to be? Yeah, and also that there's this there's this thin line between. I mean, there there is a lot of Adaptation of the built environment, just like there's adaptation of everything in Cairo that has quite a bit of charm, right? That's mm. you know, people just making the space work for them in one way or another. Uh, that's that's either quite creative or quite resourceful, or you know, or or actually, or makes sense, you know, in their in their context. And it's sort of hard to draw the line between that and then when it shades into you know choices that are actually um i mean often like damaging to the shared space right like right that that right. encroach well, think, on right. everyone's quality of life that encroach on space that should be shared and regulated in a way that makes for the best urban experience for everyone and and that and that are and that are ugly. I mean, I know it's hard to talk about like beauty and ugliness, but I do I think one of the reasons I have such so strong feelings about issues like this city and its spaces is that I think everyone has a right to beauty in their life actually. And I think it's a it's a people are robbed of absolutely available beauty that they could have in their lives. And and that they deserve to have. Um, and it makes right. me furious.
0: <laughs> well, I think sort of I think I'm borrowing out of David Sims' book, Understanding Cairo, that y- you know, there are certain ways of building that are are building on knowledge that is, you know, has been put together over centuries. But then when you're making these entirely new spaces and neither you're breaking with the knowledge of, of centuries. And you're also not, not bringing in any any architect. <laughs> uh, I think this is like a point of disaster. Yeah, and it's just pastiche. It's
1: it's it's empty. Uh, you know, it's literally empty in the sense that a lot of the – uh, uh, in a city where there's a housing shortage, there's a ton of empty housing stock of things that are built as pure investments and then left right. to sit to appreciate – for decades sometimes Um, and, and, uh, and, 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 and don't add, you know, in any way uh, to the, to the overall, to the public good. There's, um, there's a, there's a book I'd mentioned in like, in this context of like construction and so on. Um, When I, uh, when I was writing about Cairo, I met, and wrote about the work of, of Hamdi Abu Gulayl, um who hmm. had written a book about this, the the informal or slum neighborhood of Mancheyit Nasser called Thieves in Retirement, um, which was a really good, uh, kind of very darkly funny uh, account of being... Uh, he comes from he's 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 of Bedouin origin. He comes from outside of Cairo, of of being like a newcomer in one of these like, uh, you know, peripheral neighborhoods. Um, and then he wrote another book called *Il Fail* in Arabic, and I guess *A Dog Without a Tail* in the English translation. Um, yes, that's specifically mm-hmm. about his experience being a construction worker, and and sort of participating in making this this in this constant process of like uh you know changing the face of the city as one of its like new and kind of marginalized arrivals and and I and I think both both books are 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 really quite good and speak to uh you know 21st century (laughs) Cairo to um to this experience of not being rooted and of everything changing really fast, and of nobody belonging in the city,
0: right? And now you'll have to remind me of the. the does the the nineteen ninety two earthquake
1: happen in one of them? I think the of, there residents of are the residents of Mancheit Nasser. No, I think because they they were they were factory workers, and that's where the name of that neighborhood mm. comes from. Uh, it may be referenced because the one about his time as a construction worker is kind of like short stories but I don't remember Mm -hmm. it featuring prominently in either the first one is sort of about again this particular building and its residents and this family and the neighborhood and the street and so on Um, and, uh, and the second is more like interlinking short stories about different things that happen as he works on the construction cruise around Cairo um, and, uh, and I remember him saying to me when I like interviewed him and talked to him and it was, was like, oh, we're all like, everyone's marginalized. Now there is no center to the city. Mm.
0: Right. Well, it's funny because it, it, if there were a, a center in the terms of center of power, the center is outside of, is all these places outside of
1: the city for the most part. Yeah, no the center wants to escape. The center wants to right. be as as removed as possible um from from the real I mean, you know, the place where the Arab Spring broke out is geographically one of the centers of cairo it's it's a square with all these main arteries leading into it it's a place that's accessible from like all the historic neighborhoods of cairo it's it's a place that you could reach on foot uh this this new administrative capital that they're building is is very it's very much the opposite of that uh right for- yeah no i
0: remember the first time somebody suggested that i meet them at a place called downtown which is on Road 90, the same road that the American University, the new American University in Cairo building is at, which is one of the new uh, buildings that is featured in Mohammed's book. And this, it's kind of, a, this mall complex called downtown has like, here's like the mini Cairo tower. Here's the mini uh, Nile River. It's like a, a miniaturized you replica. Of, yeah. Yeah. It, it, I mean, you can go to a poll. Oh, Wow. <laughs> It's a miniaturized replica of downtown.
1: Yeah, That's if you ever want to go there. I mean, gigantic
0: golf ball on top.
1: Oh, wow. I mean, the, the advertising campaigns and the discourse and the names of these developments outside of Cairo have been, you know, sources of ironic amusement and 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 also you know probably you know it's and and scholarly deconstruction for quite some time and they do they are like extremely revealing um of the paranoia's and aspirations and and of, of a certain Yeah my class favorite of is New Giza. Um because they they one of the billboards
0: had some sort of reference to eternity <laughs> you know <laughs> so you moved to New Giza <laughs> you too will become a pharaoh and live on in perpetuity. Oh my gosh, that's hilarious. Right. And it's 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 funny too because you know of course there are gated communities in in cities around the world, right? It's a phenomenon that happens. There are many gated yeah. communities in cities um particularly more urban cities like Detroit. Uh, I, I okay, I don't know it statistically, but that's where I've noticed more people wanting to escape uh, cities with problems and moving outside of them um, but in Cairo like so many things this just seemed to take place on absolute steroids with these enormous billboards everywhere and these totally over-the-top names and advertisements and and I, I I'm unfortunately not going to remember the numbers on this but somebody did tell me that they you know uh, uh, you know friends, Get called often to be solicited to to buy into these um, mm. these gated communities, and th- that somebody had said that oh, I can't remember, but it, the number was like insane that there are like two hundred or something where you can buy properties. That this real estate agent had had listings in multiple hundreds of different gated communities outside of Cairo.
1: Yeah, yeah. No, I I believe that. I mean, it seems like you you can't – I mean, there's just questions of transportation. There's questions of water. Like, I feel like some of the people listening to this are going to say, you know – come on, traffic is terrible. Like, there are reasons why we want to go out and live somewhere with a garden where the air is clean or where it's quieter or, you know, that that model is, like, been, you know, commercially appealing around the world uh, and, uh, and that we're, you know, dismissing those aspirations. And I'm not, actually. But I really believe that... The way that you achieve clean air and green spaces and you know calm and all these things that are of value in the urban environment as well as others, like you know having being able to walk to commercial spaces and and having sort of like the access to so many services and to so much entertainment and culture that a city can provide, the way that you achieve that is not to prior is not to drive the 45 minutes out of the city to some like newly built development it's to you know have a vision for development of the city core and that's what I think is missing and I think also for the it's like for the shared narrative of 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 a city, like, I, I wonder what kind of literature this, these, these, this new, this new environment will produce. Like. Right. This- well, certainly
0: there's Utopia by Ahmed Khaled Tawfiq, you know, which is set in 2020. <laughs> Ahmed Khaled Tawfiq passed a, a few years ago now, but the, his novel, which maybe was from, well, anyway, um, the early part of this century, the 21st, it's said in 2023 and it's supposed to be this dark future mm. where the wealthy egyptians living in gated communities
1: oh i read um, it
0: are, right right who they they were protected by american um army or marines or something and they can kill uh, anybody they want when they go outside of their compounds pretty much with with impunity so they're not supposed to go outside of their compounds because it's uh, it's not safe for them to go out into the rest of cairo where the where the r- regular people live but these two do sneak out in order to uh, you know f- to entertain themselves to kill somebody and bring back i believe a part of their body mm. um yeah, so, so so there is that I mean you know I mean it's an of-
1: exaggerated version but honestly this reality in which you drive and you drive down these six-lane highways that no that are built with such utter contempt for the like miserable little pedestrian who might need to cross them mm-hmm. uh th- this this vision that is so like deeply classist and undemocratic by privileging the automobile over the human being so much in a city where the majority of the people still do not own a car. Like, you wouldn't know it right. looking at the traffic in Cairo, but the majority of Cairo residents still are not car owners. Uh, right. Like, like it, it it's just, it is. It's so contemptuous of the residents of the city. And so this this guy just takes it further, but it's not that wild. I mean, it's wild. Like, where I don't yeah. expect they're going to no, start no, hunting. No, I <laughs> it's, But No, no, no. No, but I think like I should. I
0: should. (laughs) Much of what's called dystopian fiction that's set in Cairo, it's more of a near future vision, uh, uh, a exaggerated vision of things that are happening right now. So yes, um, as far as I know, the U.S. Army has not been deployed to protect uh, Egypt's um, gated communities and. And certainly I don't think that you can go kill people with impunity, but but absolutely there is a different level of privilege. If you, for instance, hit someone with your car and they died versus if they right. came into your gated community.
1: Um, well, I could go on and on talking about this <laughs> maddening city, but is I think – is there anything else that you want to add before we – Remind people of a few things here at the end? No, I don't think so. But
0: I don't think that Ahmed Khalid Taufit mentioned in Utopia that there was a particular architect who designed these uh, gated communities. So that was sort of
1: made invisible in that. Mm. Yeah, it's like the things, the spaces just spring up, right? Right. It's like they're just Mm -hmm. always been there. And this amnesia about what was there before... I I mean I I will say it to end. I think this is really a, a a lovely book to get back to to Cairo since nineteen hundred, and that I think you know it's 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 a great resource. It's a great resource for specialists and for lay people, um, and it you know kind of does a Sisyphean task because one does feel like there's just no stopping so many of these changes. Um, uh, some of which are, are 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 so damaging, but but of of trying to preserve uh, some of this memory to honor both all the individuals who contributed, who 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 made things, and who are so quickly forgotten, um, and and to show kind of the history of this development, so that what our present is doesn't just feel like. Inevitable, and and this is how it has to be, and this is how it's always been. Like, no, there's a, there's there's a development, and there are other options, there are other avenues. Like, right. a built environment right. could be different. Right, yeah, no. Um, Nadir Mansour
0: has written about this book, Cairo since 1900, and also Humphrey and Leslie's A Field Guide to Street Names of Central Cairo as an act of preservation in
1: themselves. And what I like is this preservation without actually being particularly nostalgic. It, right. It's just, like, this is our history and we deserve to know it. It's not, you know, this kind of, uh, you know, it's things... It's not
0: triumphalist. W- it's not nationalist. It's, it's right. much and, more... Right, and it's
1: not also like, oh, the golden days of, you know, this particular time and place was perfection, which, you know, ten, tends to be in the first half of the 20th century and there's a lot of problematic things about kind of romanticizing that too, uh, no, I, th- I think it strikes a, a really, a really thoughtful, and it and it and it looks wonderful. And I want my copy, and then I want, <laughs> and then I want to be in Cairo with it, and I want to go around. Um, uh, okay, so before we before we wrap up, I should remind people uh, if you like the show, please rate the show, subscribe on one of the many platforms where you can subscribe, uh, share it with your friends. Um, also. Uh check out Arab Lit Quarterly, Marsha's Fantastic Magazine of Arabic Literature in Translation, and also check out the other shows on the Sot network, uh, which are all in Arabic and which are on all sorts of topics ranging from music to feminism to politics, uh, and and are really excellent. Um and I think I'm done with reminders. Is that <laughs> Yeah. I think I think that wraps it up. Yeah. All right. Well, it was great talking okay. to you.
0: Lovely talking to you too. Okay. Bye-bye everyone. Bye.